hearts. Let's look at Ephesians 6 together. We're going to be looking at verse number 17. Let's read it out loud. Let's read it with some enthusiasm. Ready? Here we go. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Well, today we're going to finish our series on the armor of God. And we're going to look at the sword of the Spirit. The sword of the Spirit. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the Bible. It is our sword. It's sharp. It's powerful. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's everything we need uh, to get us through life. It is, uh, Lord, it is a textbook that we can study. It is, Lord, a rule book that tells us what to do and not to do. It is a love letter from heaven that lays out for us how much you care for us. Lord God, you look down at fallen man who fell by sin through Adam and Instead of just throwing us away and discarding us, you decided to send Jesus, your one and only begotten Son, who died in our place, who suffered death for us, so that we could have the riches of eternal life. Jesus, you're the hero of every book of this Bible. Lord, help us to hold you up, not only here at church, but in our hearts individually. Help us to fall in love with the written word. May it transform us from the inside out. Lord, as we talk about the sword of the Spirit today, the word of God, may our hearts burn within us to love your book more and more, to love you more and more. Lord, be with us today. Move in our midst. Thank you for this church. Lord, what it means to me, what it means to us, what it means to so many. Help us to continue to be a bright light in a dark world. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Well, we've looked at the armor of God piece by piece. We've studied five different parts that have instructed us uh, how to... Uh, rather, we've looked at five different parts and we've talked about how we're to put these five parts on every single day. We're to strap on the armor of God every single day. Now, what are the five, uh, the p- five parts of the armor? What are their purpose? Their purpose is to protect us against Satan's attack. They are defensive in nature. Defensive in nature. Satan fires his wiles or his fiery darts at us, and he's trying to get us to fall into sin. He's trying to rip us or pull us away from a close relationship with God. He's trying to destroy our testimony and tarnish our character and hurt our reputation. And we strap on these five parts of the armor of God so that those fiery darts cannot pierce through and pull us down. So today's study, we shift from the defensive to the Offensive, And we're going to go on the attack against the devil this morning. We're going to talk about the sword of the Spirit. This is a study of the Christian and his spiritual weapon. His spiritual weapon. Ephesians 6, earlier in the chapter, tells us we wrestle not against 
flesh and blood, but against principalities and spirits and powers and darkness and high places. And uh, the Bible tells us that there's a war, a spiritual war going on around us. And Christian, if you're saved, you are a good soldier in the fight. And we're told to be good soldiers and to bear our cross. Now, if you're a soldier and you go into war without some weapon, then you are foolish. You are foolish. It's not enough to go into war and just be prepared and not get shot at. No, if you're going at war and bullets are flying at you, you better be ready to return fire. And many Christians are content to play defense against the devil. Just defense against the devil. And as long as I just survive one day to the next and Satan doesn't take me down, boy, life is okay and I'm alright. No, we're to pick up our weapon and we're to go to war and be on the offense for the Lord. And so what is our weapon? It is the sword of the Spirit. The sword of of the Spirit. I believe that in order to succeed in the Christian life, we must learn how to handle and how to use our spiritual swords. Our model, our, our, our example is the Lord Jesus Christ. You may remember that at the age of 30, Jesus began His public ministry there in Cana where He uh, turned the water into wine. Shortly thereafter, He was baptized. And after His baptism, He was led by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, into a place of wilderness, into a place of solitude for uh, 40 days and 40 nights. Jesus did not eat any food. Uh, He probably drank water, but he did not eat any food. After 40 days of fasting and praying and drawing his heart closer and closer to his Father, guess who showed up? Good old Satan. Satan was there. You know what Satan's really good at doing? He's really good at showing up in those moments of weakness Ready to attack. Well, you're down and you're having a hard time and you're struggling. Be sure Satan's going to be right there to offer temptation right in front of you. You know what else is going on in the life of Jesus right here? It's the word transition. Transition. How many of you have been saved long enough to realize you've got this figured out? When you go through a time of transition in your life, whether that's work or a new home or a new vehicle or uh, 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 maybe you're bringing children into the home or uh, you're transitioning in your growth in the Lord, you've got a schedule change. In these points of transition, Satan's right there to try to trip you up and take you down. How many know what I'm talking about this morning? You you know, you've experienced this. You've seen this. Uh, Some of you are new to the Christian life, and this is a a revelation to you. Uh, A a new thing you are learning is that Satan's right there. Here, Jesus is transitioning from being a carpenter into full-time ministry, and Satan's right there to tempt him. And so three times Satan tempts the Lord, three times. The first time he says, turn the stone in, uh, stones into bread. And you know what First uh, uh, John tells us? There are three categories in which the Christian sins and falls. It's the uh, lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. The very first temptation for the Lord involved lust of the flesh. Satan says, Jesus, you're hungry and you have the power to turn those rocks into bread. Turn those rocks into bread and satisfy the lust of your flesh. And Jesus knows that he's not to use the power God gave him for selfish reasons. And so what does Jesus do? 
He pulls out the sword of the Spirit and he quotes the word of God at the devil. He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. He uses the sword of the Spirit. Satan's trying to strike him. He strikes back with the sword of the Spirit. Then Satan takes him up on top of the temple and says, cast yourself down because the book of Psalms says that if you throw yourself down that the angels will not let you dash your foot against a rock. And what's he doing here? He's tempting Jesus with uh, uh, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. Throw yourself off and uh, you know what? Uh, you'll be saved. And then people will honor you and worship you that much more. And Satan again is tempting Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He looks at the devil and he says, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. He quotes Scripture. Satan's on the offense. He's hurling a while, a fiery dart at Jesus, and Jesus reaches into his sheath, and he pulls out the sword of the Spirit, and he goes on the offense, and he attacks the devil. And then Satan takes Jesus up on top of a mountain, and he shows him the kingdoms of the world. And he says, if you'll bow down to me, you won't have to wait to get this. I'll give it to you right now. And Jesus again quotes this scripture to the devil. Satan, uh, by the way, here he's using the pride of life. And Satan is tempting Jesus. And Jesus goes on the offense. He pulls out the sword of the Spirit from the sheath and he attacks the devil. And then the devil retreats and leaves him alone. Angels come and minister to Jesus. And Jesus has won the spiritual battle as a good soldier. And did he just wear his armor? He had his uh, uh, belt of truth on. He had his breastplate of righteousness on. He had his shoes of peace on. He had his helmet of salvation on. Uh, he had his shield of faith. But he also uh, uh, pulled out the sword of the Spirit and he won the battle against the devil. Now, all of us here today face temptations. All of us here today have Satan after us. And many of us are content with playing defense, but the Bible, God wants you to become well averse with your sword, your spiritual sword, and learn how to hit back at the devil. Christians, we must become masterful at using this weapon in spiritual battle, the spiritual battle that goes on around us. We're going to look at five thoughts today. Let me encourage you to get that bulletin out and take notes. Take notes, fill in the blank. Some of you here bring notebooks and you take copious notes. Uh, Others of you are content just to listen, but let me encourage you to take notes as we go here and write these five thoughts down. I've got a lot I want to share with you today. I'm excited about the message and I hope all of us leave here challenged to become better with our sword. Number one, notice the parallel of the sword. The parallel of the sword. Uh, look at Ephesians chapter 6 and look at verse 17 with me. The Bible says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Can you read the rest of the verse with me? Here we go. Ready? Which is the Word of God. Ready? Let's do that again. I get down to the end of that verse. Read it with me. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. Which is the Word of God. What is the sword of the Spirit? It is the Bible. It is the Bible. That book that I hope you're holding in your lap. Let me just stop here and say, um, I'm, not, uh, I'm not opposed to an app on a cell phone. I'm not opposed to it. I've got five, six, seven Bible apps loaded on my cell phone, and I reference them regularly. I use them regularly. But I'm just old-fashioned in this way. When you come to church, I think you ought to have a hard copy of the Word of God. I think you ought to bring a physical Bible 
with you to church. Some of you are minimalists. You don't like uh, to carry anything more than you have to carry. I get all that. I understand all that. Um, I heard someone say, and by the way, I'm dabbling in opinion right here. I want to make sure I state that. This is my opinion. Nowhere in the Bible does it say you can't use a cell phone app in church, all right? It doesn't say that. Cell phones didn't exist, all right? And so this is my opinion. I want to make sure I'm clear on that. Uh, But what happens when we have an app on our phone that is our primary go-to? Let me tell you uh, what can happen here is that the Bible becomes nothing more than just another digital button on our phone that we touch and open. You have the flashlight app and you have a compass app and uh, you have a, a text messaging app and a social media app. Oh, and then I have a Bible app. My friend, the Bible is not any of those other things. It is so far above and so far more superior than. Uh, bring a physical Bible with you to church. And by the way, if you have all you have today is your cell phone, I also want to make sure I get this disclaimer in here. There have been plenty of times when I wasn't a pastor that all I had was a cell phone and an app on the cell phone. And I've sat in church like some of you are right now, and I've done the same thing. Okay, so I've been where you are. I'm not throwing stones at you. I'm just trying to encourage and admonish. We okay this morning? We okay this morning? All right. Uh, Another thing here. When you're reading the Bible off of a cell phone, you've got such a small screen. You've only got at the most four, five, six verses at a time. And what can happen is you can easily lose context with the rest of the passage around it. Someone once said this, and I agree with the statement. They said, um, uh, let's see, pretext, uh, let me make sure I get this right, text without context ends up becoming pretext. Text without context becomes pretext. And so when you have a whole Bible, uh, you can see that. Furthermore, it offers a really good testimony when you have your Bible. Now, uh, when I'm sitting at the kitchen table and I'm eating my frosted flakes, I had frosted flakes for breakfast this morning. Any Frosted Flakes fans in the room? All right. How many of you think that Frosted Flakes is a child cereal and you would never stoop to such level? Erlon, you're the biggest kid in the room. Put your hand down. Amen? Um, I had Frosted Flakes uh, for breakfast this morning and I was drinking my coffee. You know, if I'm sitting there with my cell phone and I'm reading my Bible, my kids come in the room, my wife comes in the room, they, they, don't, they, they may think I'm just reading the news or watching a YouTube video. But when they see my Bible open on the table, they got a pretty good idea they need to leave Dad alone. He's walking with God. You all with me this morning? You understand? Uh, you, you need to own a hard copy of the Word of God. You, you, you need to use it regularly. D.L. Moody said that uh, uh, sin will keep you from this book or this book will keep you from sin. And so someone else said, if your Bible's falling apart, your life probably isn't. Right? So get a Bible. Read it. Use it. Study it. I'm not opposed to cell phone apps. But get a Bible. Read it. Use it. Study it. The Bible says here in Ephesians 6.17, the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of of God. Uh, Hebrews 4.12 says the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper, listen to this, than any two-edged sword. And so the parallel of the sword, the parallel of the sword, what is the sword of the Spirit? The Bible says it is the word of God. By the way, Jesus is the living word. John 
uh, 1, verse 1 says, And the Word, capital W, Word, that's a proper noun. The Word was made, or John 1, 14, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld, uh, 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 we, we beheld Him. So what is, who is the living Word? Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, is the living Word, and you hold in your hands the written Word. This is the written form of Jesus Christ right here. You, if you have a Bible, you have the written form of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the most powerful being in our universe. And so hold the Word of God in high esteem. The parallel of the sword. Number, notice number two, the purpose of the sword. The purpose of the sword. Uh, take your Bibles with me over to 2 Timothy chapter number 3. A familiar passage. I know some of you here have it memorized, but uh, uh, just, just humor me if you would and turn over there anyway. Uh, the, the purpose of the sword. Let's look at verses 16 and 17. We're going to break these down, especially verse 16. We're going to look at in detail this morning. We're going to break this verse down. Uh, verse 16. I'm going to begin reading and catch up with me when you get there. We're going to look at it several times. It says, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. All Scripture is profitable for what? Well, we have four things that uh, serve as the purpose of the Word of God or Scripture. Here they are. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And then verse 17 tells us the purpose that the man of God may be perfect or mature, throughly furnished, Unto all good works. Alright, so four purposes of the sword laid out in verse 16. Again, what are they? Read them out loud with me. Here we go. For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. One more time, everybody now, ready? For doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So let's look at these four and uh, let me give you an A, B, C, and a D. Alright, letter A, notice. For doctrine, notice proving what is right, proving what is right. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. That word doctrine comes from the same root word that we get our word teachings from. Teachings. The word doctrine is teachings. Now, uh, the, the Word of God is filled with many teachings or many doctrines. What is the purpose of teachings or doctrines? To tell us what is right. To lay out the standard of what is right. i got to tell you, I, I, when I get to heaven one day and I stand before the Lord and I give an account for my life, I, I'm going to look at Him and He's going to look at me and say, He's going to say, I gave you a book full of doctrine to tell you how to live by. To whom much is given, much shall be required, right? And we live in a time where we have the Bible. We have it in great abundance. Uh, we have a whole lot of it here. Uh, I've got in my office right back behind that wall, I've got four, five, six other copies of the Bible. I mentioned the cell phone apps a minute ago. Uh, I've got commentaries in my office. I've got commentaries on my phone, commentaries on my computer. I've got all sorts of resources to help break down the doctrines of the Bible and prove that which is right. Matthew seven twenty-eight and 29, the Bible says, And it came to pass, when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at His teachings, at His doctrine, for He taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Jesus had just got through teaching values and principles about how to live life. Uh, he took the time to prove what was right? Listen, one of the reasons why I love the Bible is it is the standard of right and wrong in my daily life. 
the standard of right and wrong. Um, I know what is right and what is wrong, not based on what culture tells me. Aren't you thankful that we can get our standard of what's right, not from a culture that changes it every five years? I'm not being political uh, on purpose here, but for point of uh, proof in what I'm saying, uh, when President Obama ran for uh, the presidency in his first term, he said he believed marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. The very next term he ran for office, he said that marriage could be between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. Now, you see how his truth on what was right and wrong changed in just four years? You, how many of you were old enough to remember when it was popular in America to believe that marriage was between one man? And it was popular. It was a popular belief. Boy, that's not the case anymore, isn't it? You see, the doctrines of our culture, they change every so many years. But the doctrines of the Bible never change. They're a rock we can put our feet on that never, ever, ever move. The Word of God proves to you and I what is right. How many of you have ever been sitting in church and the pastor was up preaching and he was preaching the Bible? I mean, he was not, he was not stretching. He was preaching the Bible right on the money. And man, that preaching hit you right between the eyes and you knew you were in the wrong. How many know what I'm talking about? I mean, you know what I'm talking about, okay? The rest of you are lying, okay? Hey, you know what I'm talking about. Well, you got a choice right there, don't you? you got a choice, don't you? You can either accept that it's truth, or you can just accept yourself and what you believe is truth. How many religions are there in America today? I would say there's as many religions as there are people walking planet in America. Because everyone has their own version of what they believe is right. Well, listen, the Bible is not a buffet where I'll take this and take that, but leave this and leave that. Just because your lifestyle doesn't match the Bible, the Bible is still right. The Bible is given to us and is profitable because it proves what is right. Letter B, letter B. Notice, uh, purging what is wrong. Purging what is wrong. Look back at verse number 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Look here. For reproof. For reproof. Let me give you a definition for reproof here. It's a very short definition. I encourage you to write this down. Reproof means to censor or rebuke. To censor or rebuke. Back in the 90s, there was a show on TV that was popular. It was the show Cops. How many remember the show Cops? The term, and I'm not a fan of this term, by the way, but uh, the, the, the term for the, the undergarment, that sleeveless undergarment that men wear, wife beater. That became popular from the show Cops, because when a guy got arrested for beating his wife, oftentimes that's what he was wearing. And I remember turning that show on and hearing, beep, 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 beep. What are they doing? They're censoring the language of, of those in this reality TV show. You know what the Word of God is to do? It's to censor the wrong in your life. It's to point out, this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong, and this is wrong. And it's to sting. It's to rebuke. It's to rebuke. I heard someone say one time, they said, uh, the, the, the standard of what you believe to be right and wrong and where you live 
that gap will not exist for very long. Watch this now. Watch this. Either you're going to bring your life up to that standard or make a strong effort to bring your life up to that standard or you're going to bring that standard of what you believe down to your life. There's not going to continue to be this gap. Either you're going to justify your sin or you're going to work on rebuking and reproving and purging that sin out of your life. When I read the Bible and the Spirit of God moves into my heart and says, this is wrong and this is wrong and this is wrong, boy, I've got a choice. I've got a choice to live contrary to God or to purge and cut away that sin out of my life. How is the Bible profitable? It is a sword, and one of the things it does is it cuts away. It purges the sin that's in my life. Let me ask you a question this morning. How do you handle rebuke? How do you handle rebuke? If, if a brother or sister were to pull you to the side and privately sit you down and say, this is, I see this in your life, and this is contrary to Scripture, and this is wrong. And let's just say they did it with the wrong spirit. How would you handle that? Would your pride bow up? Oh, who are you to tell me what's wrong with me? Let me tell you what's wrong with you. Isn't that how we act? Right? You say, I'm not that way. How'd you handle the last time your spouse pointed out something wrong in your life? I tell you how I handled it the last time my spouse pointed out something wrong in my life. I didn't handle it well. You see, a wise man loves rebuke. Loves rebuke. Watch this now. Because at the end of the day, the wise man does not care about his reputation. He cares about his character. And even if a fool points out a problem in the life of a wise man, the source does not matter. Getting to truth and a character that pleases the Lord, it reigns supreme and is above all. It does not matter how many hypocrisies that guy has in his life. I'm not going to give an account for him or her. I'm going to give an account for me. When truth comes at me, and truth is aimed at me, and my life is in contrary to truth, I've got a choice to make regardless of who the messenger was or how it was delivered. Listen to Proverbs 15.31. The ear that heareth the reproof of life abideth among the wise. The ear that heareth the reproof of life abideth among the wise. Listen, you ought to get yourself to a place where you encourage rebuke, you want rebuke, uh, rebuke is brought your way, regardless of how soft or hard it is, at the end of the day, what you want is to find yourself away from wrong and to what is right. What does the Word of God do? It purges away what is wrong. For doctrine, for reproof, let her see, notice, practicing what is right. We've looked at proving what is right. We've looked at purging what is wrong. Let her see practicing what is right. Look back at verse number 16, 2 Timothy 3.16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable, profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for correction. I love church ministry. Church ministry is great. 
If I ever have to leave church ministry, I will build a resume. And on that resume, it will show that I have done just about everything there is to do. Amen? Uh, I, have, I have been involved in all kinds of, uh, of, of things. I could make a case for uh, lawyer-type work I've done. I've had to put together some legal documents that were pretty sophisticated. Uh, I've had to uh, be way up in ceilings and hang projectors and, and screens. And, and one of the many things, the broad array of things that I've been asked to do as an assistant pastor and now as a senior pastor, one of the many things that I've done is I've got to coach a varsity basketball team. I loved coaching the varsity basketball team. I've coached a varsity boys team and a varsity girls team. Someone said, Pastor Lejeune, of everything you've done in church ministry, what is the most difficult thing you've done? Is it pastoring a church? I'd say that's second hardest. The hardest thing I've ever done was coaching a girls varsity basketball team. Oh, the emotions. Right? Coach looked at me funny. Right? You're dealing with 6th grade girls all the way up to 12th grade girls. And listen, teenage boys are hard enough. Um, and then you got factions on the team, right? This girl's not talking to that girl. And then the next day, they're talking, but now they're not talking to this one. And you know what? You know how I corrected that? We're going to run lines until you all get along. You know what? People get along real fast when you make them run long enough. But coach girls basketball, coach boys basketball, you know... I, as coach, I'd sit on the sideline, and, and, and I got to a place where I understood the science of basketball so well that I could look out and see what they weren't doing right, right? Maybe they were overplaying, and excuse the technical language for a moment if you don't know the game, they were overplaying a passing lane, or they weren't getting back on defense, or they were too clustered in the middle of the court on a fast break, or they're bringing the ball up on the right or the left side instead of down the middle of the court on a fast break, and uh, uh, they were out of position in defense, or whatever it was, and I'm, I'm analyzing and analyzing and analyzing, you go on at halftime and you make some adjustments, but uh, that doesn't always get it done, so you know what you do after a game where there's been lots of mistakes? You get into the gym and you have a practice and you're fixing the things they got wrong so that when the next game comes up, they get those things right. And the goal is that by the end of the season, they play the game close to perfect. Now, no one ever plays a perfect game, but you want to get them closer to it than at the beginning. You know, the Christian life is a lot like that. God sees us in action in the spiritual war and he sees us making mistakes Aren't you glad God does not just take a big stick and have a hand come out of heaven and go whap when we do wrong? Boy, I'd be about six feet shorter than I am right now from getting whacked so many times, right? You know what God does is He takes analytical notes of where we get things wrong. And then in the quietness of a walk with God when we're reading the Bible, He purges us to get us more game ready for war. And then he sends us right back into the same trial to see if we'll get it right the next time. Some of you here think, God, why do you keep running me through the same trial? Because you're stubborn. And you're not willing to change. And he's going to keep running you through the same trial until you change. Because he wants you to get it right. He wants you to live with a heart full of joy. What is the Word of God? It's correction. It's correction. 
How is correction different than reproof? Boy, reproof is when you sit someone down and you just tell them where they're wrong. Correction is saying, listen, here's where you're wrong, but let me show you how to do it right. Imagine with me for a moment that um, I tell my son to go make his bed, and I come into his room, and he's pulled the covers up over his pillow, but you know the, the bed sheet is quite a bit longer than the, the comforter, and, and it's at a slant. There's wrinkles all over the bed. I call Matthew in, and I say to him, I say, boy... You did a terrible job making that bed. And I just hammer him for five minutes about how lazy he is and uh, how sloppy he is. And I'm using an example because his, his bed looks like a marine all the time, right? But how sloppy he is. And I just lay him out. I rebuke him for five minutes. But then I don't take him in the room and teach him how to make the bed properly. You see, rebuke is when someone gets in your face, whether it's the Spirit of God, the Word of God, or a brother or sister in Christ, and they say, this is out of line. But correction is where we say, let me show you how to get it in line. Let me teach you the right way to do it. You know what the Word of God does not only step on our toes when we get it wrong. It lays out for us through stories and through Scripture how not only, uh, uh, it, it doesn't only tell us how, where we're wrong. It lays out in Scripture how to get it right and how to, how, how to correct our way. So we've looked at the, the, we're looking at the purpose of the sword, proving what is right, purging what is wrong, practicing what is right, and then one more here, notice, protecting what is right, protecting what is right. Look back at verse 16 of 2 Timothy 3. The Bible says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, for instruction in righteousness. If we do not continue to instruct the generations behind us on how to use the sword, then we will allow the devil to come right in and quietly take it away from us. All across America today, there are churches that are filled with people, but in those churches, there's very little Bible being used. And yes, I'm talking about contemporary churches. But I'm also talking about independent Baptist churches. Unfortunately, I was raised in an era of the independent Baptist world. Maybe this was not, I hope this was not the case here at White Oak. I was not here. I cannot speak to that. But I can speak to the independent Baptist movement more broadly. I was raised in an era where the popular method and style of preaching was to read half a verse and holler. Read half a verse and holler. How many of you know, what, as far as the independent Baptist world goes, how many know what I'm talking about? Half a verse and holler. Now we have a generation of, of kids who've grown up behind that who don't know their Bibles. I wonder why. Maybe because pastors have been pre busy preaching their opinion instead of preaching the Bible. And stating their opinion as though it is the Bible. I shared my opinion with you earlier about having a physical Bible in church. That's just my opinion. If you don't agree with it, you don't have to... It, listen, this is what we hold high here. Right here. I hope that the children growing up through this church, they turn 18 and they go off to college. And, and you know what they know? They know this right here real well. 
Because it's held high in our children's program. It's held high in our toddler's program. It's held high in our nursery. It's held high with our teens. And listen, I hope you attend here long enough where the Bible becomes real and rich to you and you understand it. But right now, today, we got churches all over this country filled with people who cannot endure sound doctrine because for two or three generations of church attendance now, we've not held the Bible high. This is to be the instruction in righteousness. This is to instruct us to stay right. Read your Bible every day. What's the old children's song say? It says, read your Bible, pray every day. Pray every day, pray every day. Sing it with me. Read your Bible, pray every day. And you'll grow, grow, grow. Right? And then the second verse says, neglect your Bible, forget to pray. Forget to pray, forget to pray. Neglect your Bible, forget to pray, and you'll shrink, shrink, shrink. Which one of those defines your life? Have you been neglecting your Bible in prayer, or have you been in your Bible? You see, this protects us from what is right. It protects what is right in our hearts. The purpose of the sword, it does four things. It proves what is right doctrine. It purges what is wrong, reproof. It helps us practice what is right, correction. It protects what is right? Instruction and righteousness. We see, number one, the parallel of the sword. Number two, the purpose of the sword. Number three, notice the practice of the sword. Brother Jason, uh, if you could come up and assist me, please. Brother Jason is a Marine. You don't say was a Marine because once a Marine, always a Marine. So Brother Jason is a Marine. He is a discharged Marine, but he's a Marine. And um, Brother Jason's a Marine. He's going to help me uh, right here. Um, now, once a Marine has enlisted... And by the way, I ran this by Brother Jason, just to make sure that this is accurate, okay? And being a Marine, he did confirm what I'm saying is true. One, uh, once a Marine is enlisted, he is sat down in a classroom, and he's given about 40 hours of textbook training. Uh, then, I'm speaking infantry here, he is taken to the range and given 40 hours of training on the shooting range, all right? At the end of that process... Uh, those infantry marines are placed into three categories. Here are the categories. You have marksman, sharpshooter, and expert. Marksman, sharpshooter, and expert. Now, once a marine is getting ready to deploy into a combat area, he is sent into a much more intense training. Uh, they will be put into a warlike environment for up to three months at a time. In this warlike environment, they wear full gear. And they learn to live off the land. Uh, they shoot their gun regularly. All of this is meant to prepare them for combat. Prepare them for combat. As one Marine told me, and Brother Jace confirmed, leading up to deployment, you just about live at the shooting range. You just about live at the shooting range. Brother Jason, if you could get that sword for me. Christian, the day you were saved, you entered a red-hot combat zone. You were handed your armor, your spiritual armor, and you were told to put it on and learn how uh, to use it. Now, in order to get good with the sword of the Spirit, in order to get good at fighting the good fight of faith, we must practice with our sword. If you could draw that sword. You see how comfortable he looks with a sword. I have no experience with using one of those things. 
if you would hand me the sheath and ask me to go through that process, I'm lost. If you gave me a sword and him a sword and asked us to get into a sword fight, it'd be over in about five seconds. (laughs) The ushers would have to come clean Brother Jason up off the carpet. Amen? (laughs) Listen to what I'm saying right here. This is so critical to the message. Satan is an angelic being with 6,000 years of practice fighting against humanity. You know the easiest target for Satan is someone who is filled with arrogancy. I got this. What did Paul say? He said that he's careful. Right? 2 Corinthians 9, I believe it is. He said, I myself might become a castaway. I keep under my body, there it is, and bring it into subjection. Lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Satan's got 6,000 years of experience taking out Christians or believers in the Lord. But you have one advantage the devil doesn't have. You have the Word of God. He is no match against the Word of God. The Bible says in Hebrews 4, we're going to look at it more in just a moment. The Bible says it's sharper than any two-edged sword. But you know what? If you don't know how to use the sword... You stand no chance against the devil. Are you practicing using your sword? Do you know that sword? Brother Jason, if you could come stand next to me and face the crowd, please. And I need you to help me with an exercise. We did not go over this ahead of time. So this is is just as new for him as it is for all of you, okay? How effective would someone with a sword be if they only used one finger to grip the sword? Can you grip that sword with one finger, please? You see, in order to really be good with the sword, we must grip it with five fingers. Let me give you the five fingers with which we grip the sword. The first finger, we must read God's Word. Letter A, we must read God's Word. Now, some of you, this is as far as you've gotten. You read the Bible every day. Praise God that you read the Bible every day. Amen? Those of you that do it, you got a one-finger grip on that sword. And that's better than not holding the sword at all. We must read God's Word. I just want to ask a very simple question to everyone in the room this morning. Do you read your Bible every day? Do you read it every day? Now, many of you do, but not all of you. Um... Many of you here go through spurts where you read the Bible every day, and then you go through spurts where you, you kind of forget and you get out of habit. All right? How many of you can identify that at some point in your Christian life, even if it's right now, at some point in your Christian life, you've gone through spurts of reading and not reading your Bible? You know what I'm talking about? Okay? But when you're reading it, you got one... By the way, it's great. you got one finger on the sword. But in a sword fight, that's not going to carry you. 
All right? How about two fingers on the sword here? Um, the second finger that we grip the sword with, we must research God's Word. We must research God's Word. Have you put the effort in and learn how to study your Bible? Paul told the church of Corinth, and I paraphrase here, he said, I can't give you spiritual meat because you're still drinking milk. Now, by the way, if you've only been saved or, or coming to a Bible-preaching church for a short time, there's nothing wrong with spiritual milk. There's nothing wrong with exclusively drinking spiritual milk. I just explained this in my life group a few minutes ago. If you were in there, bear with me here. The difference between milk and meat is that milk is meat that's been processed and turned into milk. When you show up to church Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, Pastor Lejeune has sat in his study, or the preacher, whoever it happens to be, has sat in his study. He's studied the Bible. He's taken the meat of God's Word. He's digested it. He's mentally chewed on it. He's researched it. He's turned it into milk. Right now, what I'm doing is I'm giving you the milk of the Word. When you show up Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, you know what you're taking in? You're taking in the milk of God's Word. And by the way, whether whether you are a newborn or you're an adult, we all need to drink our spiritual milk. And don't give me the excuse that you're spiritually lactose intolerant. Amen? I don't want to hear it. We all need that milk. But what happens if that child who's drinking, that, that newborn that's drinking milk, does not grow spiritual teeth, does not develop the motor skills to feed himself? You give a newborn a piece of steak, you're going to kill him. But by that time, the newborn's six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old. If he's not eating spirit, if he's not eating meat, he's not capable of eating meat. We begin to question and wonder: Do we need to take this child to a doctor? What's going on here? Some of you have been saved six, seven, eight, nine, ten years, but you don't know how to study the Bible. Boy, all you, you're, still, you're still living off a diet of milk where you expect the pastor to feed you. You need to continue having the Word of God fed you at church, but at some point you need to learn how to open up this Bible and study it for yourself. The third finger on the sword, we must learn to reflect on God's Word. Reflect on God's Word. How many of you here occasionally daydream? Would you raise your hand if you daydream sometimes? If your hand's not raised, you're probably daydreaming right now. <laughs> Someone bumped the person next to you and say, Stop daydreaming. Pastor just got you. you. Daydream, your mind just wanders, right? When was the last time that you daydreamed and your mental wanderings took you on to spiritual truth? The old illustration here that's been used for hundreds of years is the cow. How many stomachs does a cow have? Four. I'm glad someone here knew that because I didn't, so thank you. Four stomachs. You know how this works, right? They chew their cud, they swallow it. Excuse me, but they regurgitate it. They chew it a little bit more. They swallow it into a second stomach. They regurgitate it, right? They chew it more. They're getting all of the nutrients out of that cud. 
You read your Bible. And can I tell you how most of us read our Bible? We're reading and our eyes are going over the words. But our mind's thinking about projects at work and groceries we need to buy and things we need to clean and what someone said that upset me and how good or bad I looked in this situation. How many ever got eight, nine, ten verses down and thought, I have no idea what I just read? You know what I'm talking about? And you go, whoa, 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 stop, stop, stop. Let me back up ten verses and let me read that again and let me focus this time. You ever read for two or three chapters that way, closed your Bible and went on in the next part of your day? You ought to read your Bible in such a way where you're in a spirit of prayer while you read. Lord, show me. Show me what you want me to get out of this passage. Lord, this is so rich. Thank you for that. And you know what you're doing? You're mentally chewing. You're reflecting on the Bible. And then later in the day, when you're eating your ham and cheese sandwich at work, you pull that truth back up from your Bible reading either the morning or the evening prior and you think on that a little bit deeper. You see, we cannot defeat the devil if we're not reading the Bible. We cannot defeat the devil in sin if we're not researching the Bible. We cannot defeat the devil until we've gotten that third finger on the sword where we're reflecting on the Bible. How about four fingers? How about this one? Retaining God's Word. Retain God's Word. We must retain God's Word. When Jesus fought off Satan's temptation, He did so with a quick, a quick recollection of the Scriptures. A quick recollection of the Scriptures. The more you saturate your mind into the Bible, the more likely you will be to retain it. I wonder how many soldiers have been in the dark, in a, a bunker, and had their gun jam, and in the dark without being able to see their weapon well. They've had to take that weapon apart and, and clear the jam and put it back together so that they could stand and save their life and the life of the other soldiers in that bunker with them. How many of you here know your Bible well enough that even if you were in a dark place in your heart and life, you could recall the Word of God and it could help you to get yourself out of a bad spot? We must learn to retain God's Word. Look, I think for a lot of people who show up to church, let me tell you what they do. They come in, they sit down, they mindlessly sing the songs off the screen. They don't think about what they're singing. They uh, sit through a sermon and it goes in one ear and out the other. And they leave week after week after week after week with very little to no change in their life. They sit down with their Bible. Pastor Lejeune gets up and he talks about, read your Bible, read your Bible, read your Bible. And so we say, you know what? You psych yourself up. I'm going to do it. I'm going to go home. I'm going to read my Bible. And so Monday morning you wake up, you get your coffee or your tea, you sit down at the table, you open your Bible, and you read it, and you retain nothing. And it isn't because there's a lack, or rather, it's, it's, it, there's an, it, 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 it isn't because you don't understand, it's because there's a true lack of effort to retain God's Word. I am amazed how many Christians cannot defend themselves in our current culture. Someone at work says, Christians are bigoted because they believe homosexuality is a sin. And you don't know how to sit there and defend from the Bible that Christians are not bigoted, but yes, we do believe that homosexuality is a sin. You know why? Because you're not really retaining God's Word. Someone looks at you and says, there's something different about you. I watch you at work something different about you. What's different about you? 
Do you know how to tell them, Jesus died on the cross for my sins and I'm a child of God and here's how you can become one as well? We must learn to retain God's Word. It needs to go in. Listen, the question is this. Are you a dry sponge looking to suck in the Bible? Or are you so filled with yourself and so arrogant that that sponge is full? The Word of God is poured on your life and it just runs right off because there's nowhere for it to go. The fifth finger, we're going to grip this sword, we're going to grip it well, we're going to practice God's Word, we must recite God's Word. We must recite God's Word. Now this is the one I've got to get back to being better at. Alright? Memorization. Oh, it's a cuss word, Pastor. Don't say it. Don't raise your hand. Don't raise your hand. But I wonder how many of you in here actively memorize Bible verses. Don't raise your hand. Are we memorizing God's Word? You see, uh, when, when, when the, Satan came at Jesus, he quoted three verses to him. Word for word, God and perfect. You say, well, of course, he was the living Word, Pastor. He, he was the Bible in walking form. Of course he quoted. Listen, set that to the side. The point is, can you quote the Word of God? Psalm 119, 9, 10, 11 says, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy uh, word? With my whole heart have I sought thee. Oh, let me, uh, oh, let me not wander for thy commandments. Listen to verse 11. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. It's not just about quoting verses. It's quoting verses that are tailor-made for the temptation that you're going through. But you can't quote a verse that you haven't memorized. You can't recite a verse that you don't know. And I can already hear the excuses, but pastor, I'm bad at memorization. All right, we're going to do this. We're going for it. How many of you are willing to admit that you're bad at memorization? You know what that just means? It means you've got to work a little bit harder. So can we, can we deduce here? I know this deduction is going to step on someone's toes. We all right? I'm warning you. All right? Curl those toes up in your shoes because I'm coming for them. If you don't memorize verses because memorization is hard, that's because you're lazy. Because you just got to work a little bit harder than everybody else. We okay? We all right? You want a five-finger grip on that sword, so that when Satan comes at you, you can swipe at him and take him out. I just about tripped over the speaker. Then I'd have been, I'd have been good for the kill. Can I, can I come over? All right. Are you reading God's Word? Are you researching God's Word? Are you reflecting on God's Word? Are you retaining God's Word? Are you reciting God's Word? You see, you see, listen, if we're not properly gripping our sword, then we're easy target for the devil. You show me a Christian marriage that falls apart, someone in that marriage was not gripping that sword. You show me a Christian who used to go to church and is out of church. You show me a Christian who's not gripping their sword.
Somewhere they set the sword down. Somewhere they began to take fingers off and boy, it was easy in that fencing match with the devil for him to just knock it right out of their hand. Are you practicing with your sword? Thank you, Brother Jason. The parallel of the sword, the purpose of the sword, the practice of the sword. Number four, and lastly, notice the power of the sword. I'd like everyone to take their Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, please. Hebrews chapter 4. At some point, if I ever do write a book, I'd like to write a book out of Hebrews chapters 3 and 4. There's a lot in Hebrews 3 and 4 that deals with mental health. In fact, the topics of Hebrews 3 and 4 are mental health. Mental health is a term that the psychology world has grabbed hold of and ran with. The medical world has grabbed hold and ran with, and Christians have been content to let them wrestle away from us when the truths of mental health are found right in the Bible with two chapters. I've attended church my entire life. I've never heard anyone ever do a deep dive or deep study on Hebrews 3 and 4. Some years ago, we went through Hebrews verse by verse here on a Wednesday night, and when I got into Hebrews 3 and 4, my jaw dropped open with what I discovered and found there. Hebrews 4 verse 12 is a verse that many of us know. But Hebrews 4 and verse 12 is the apex, the climax of two chapters that talk to us about how to have victory in the area of our mind. Look at verse 12 with me. It says, The Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder. Look here, three parts of the human body, human person, of soul and spirit, and the joints and marrow, and is a discerner. Look at the last part of the verse. We're going to hone in on it in a moment here. It is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Let me give you an A and a B here quickly. Notice letter A, it divides. It divides. The power of the sword. Inside of all of us are imperfections and maladies, shortcomings, sin. If you ever want to know how much of a sinner you are, Move your belongings from one house to another in a short period of time. Every shortcoming and weakness you have comes boiling right up to the top and is exposed. Over the last week, uh, my family had the joy of moving from Beacon Falls to Stratford. Let me tell you right now, Pastor Lejeune is a bona fide sinner. Put a blue check mark by that. I am a sinner. You say, what did you do? It doesn't matter what I did. I am a sinner. Amen? I didn't run anyone over. I'm not going to get arrested, okay? We're good. I didn't do anything that disqualified me from the pastorate, amen? But uh, let's just say that my attitude uh, was, let's see, in school I would have gotten in trouble for attitude lacking, all right? You know what the Bible does? It, it, It is able to divide away, to cut away those parts of me that are sinful. It, it, it gives us two areas here, and again, I don't have, it would take weeks to break this down. So I've got about two minutes, two or three minutes here. Verse 12 tells us that the Word of God is more powerful than even the sharpest two-edged sword. There is no instrument on planet Earth that is comparable to the sharpness of the Word of God. What does that sword do within us? Well, it divides spiritually. Look back at verse 12. It says it divides the soul and the spirit. What's that mean? That means within our soul and spirit where sin lies, 
the sword is able to cut away those sins that hold us back, that weigh us down, that keep us from being who we ought to be. But not only does it divide within our soul and spirit, not only does it divide spiritually, it divides physically. Look back at verse number 12. The Bible says, dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and the marrow. Pastor, what does that mean? I wish I had a better answer for you, but clearly the Bible is able to aid in our physical health in some way. God's Word is a powerful sword that can cut away the sinful addictions that hold a person back. By the way, Christians, Baptist Christians, listen to me. We think of addictions, we think of um, cocaine, and we think of alcohol, and we think of heroin, and maybe we think of marijuana, we think of nicotine. Can I say that there are a lot of things that Baptist Christians are addicted to that don't please the Lord, that don't fall into that category? Addicted to a complaining spirit. Addicted to laziness. Addicted to sugar. Addicted to caffeine. I think I've now stepped on everybody's toes today. Addicted to food. We need to eat to live, but we don't need to live to eat. Addicted to strife. Addicted to anger. Many of these things fall down into a physiological level. You say, how do I get victory in these areas? The Word of God is quick, powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing even to the dividing asunder. Why should you learn how to grip your sword and use it well? Because those sinful addictions and problems in your life, the Word of God is more powerful than they are and can take them, can take them right off of your being. But not only does it divide, let her be, notice it discerns. It discerns. Verse 12 says it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. By the way, that summarizes in just a handful of words all of Hebrews 3 and 4. I would encourage those of you here, and there's many of you here, many of you here, these, these are the type of things that only a pastor would know from a private one-on-one conversation. Most folks are not willing to share this with more than just a very small circle. I said that to say this, there's a handful of you in here In fact, there's many of you in here that have had a conversation with me about mental health in regards to your own person. So please understand, I'm not talking about one person. I'm talking to a a large group of people within the room. You want victory over mental health, dive into Hebrews 3 and 4 and study your Bible. There's victory found within the Word of God in this area. Discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. James 1, verse 5 says, If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. Not only does the sword of the Spirit help us to cut away sin from our hearts and lives, it also provides the wisdom to discern from right and wrong, and also gives us the wisdom to discern from what's good and what's best. No matter the problems you have, you are having, the Bible is God's answer for your problem. Look up here at me this morning and I'm done. Are you wearing the armor of God? 
Did you wake up this morning and get spiritually dressed? Everyone here is dressed physically, but are you dressed spiritually? Did you put on the belt of truth this morning? Or are you falling to the lies of the devil? Are you strapped on the breastplate of righteousness? Do you have it on tight so that Satan cannot get wickedness into your heart? Did you put on your gospel shoes? Are you prepared to tell others and help others through life's problems as you share with them the gospel of peace? Did you pick up the shield of faith? Is your faith in the Lord strong, uh, knocking down those fiery darts that Satan hurls your way? Are you wearing the helmet of salvation? Yes, the helmet of reconciliation, but as we talked about last week, the helmet of recyclization. And then are you carrying with five fingers in your hand the one and only offensive weapon, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God? Where has the Lord dealt with your heart in life this morning? Maybe you need to learn how to handle rebuke better. Maybe you need to get all five fingers on the sword. Maybe you just need to grow with the milk of the Word and develop those spiritual teeth. But as the Lord works in your heart, make a decision to be a better Christian for the Lord.